welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from the BBC, the New York Times, Counterspin, the Young Turks, and NPR. Although the next U.S. presidential election is still two years away, potential candidates are starting to emerge. One person whose star is rising is the Democratic senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. Polls suggest that Obama, whose father is Kenyan and mother American, is second only to Hillary Clinton in terms of popularity among Democrat voters. The 2008 election promises to be one of the most open races in 50 years. In recent days, Barack Obama made his first visit to the crucial state of New Hampshire, where the first primary will take place. Matt Fry reports. Hey, everybody. Just coming for a cup of coffee? Very unlikely. We're at the New Grounds Coffee Shop in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and the only outsiders who turn up here want something entirely different. They want to be in the White House, and Senator Barack Obama is one of them. With his loping gait and his infectious smile, he blends easily with the adoring crowds, and we followed him on his maiden voyage to the Granite State, a dirigeur stop for any American politician who's considering a run for the White House. You guys have to let people through. Next stop, a book signing of the senator's own book, of course. The place is packed, and there's even crowd control. How often can you say that about a politician signing books? Hi, what's your name? Amy, good to see you. Amy, good to see you. Thank you for coming. The hefty tome is called The Audacity of Hope. It has done audaciously well. It's number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And it paints a picture of America vexed, divided, and yearning for new leadership. From the author, perhaps. Obviously, it's flattering to get a lot of attention. Uh, Although I must say, uh, it's baffling, uh, particularly to my wife. Um, But I actually think that the reason that I'm getting so much attention right now has less to do with me and more to do with you. We are looking for something different. It's a year before the New Hampshire primaries. It is two years before the presidential elections. And at this very early stage in a campaign which hasn't even been officially declared, no one knows whether Senator Barack Obama will actually end up one day in the White House. But to attract such a large number of people at this stage is an unprecedented phenomenon. And at the very least, it'll have to give Hillary Clinton and so many other Republicans many sleepless nights. I thought he was a great, it was a great speech. I think he's a great guy, and I think he's exactly what the country needs. I think from his heart it was great, but I wanted it to be a little more rousing. There were almost 2,000 supporters at this event, and they had each paid $25 of their own money to be here. But wait a minute. Barack Obama is African-American. Obama rhymes with Osama, and his middle name happens to be Hussein, of all things. Surely he doesn't stand a hope in hell, especially with moderate Republican voters. But just listen to Frank Luntz, a prominent Republican pollster and strategist. There is nobody in American politics today that captures the public's attention like Barack Obama. There is a personality that is so mesmerizing. You walk into a room with him and he sucks the air out and he sucks the attention in. And you don't get that in politics. And it's not by anything he says or anything he does. It's, it's by who he is and what he represents. Here's a gentleman who can speak about politics in a 
nonpartisan tone in a non-ideological way and move everybody. But what about the millions of dollars needed to run? And what about Hillary Clinton's formidable machine, assuming that she's also going to enter the race? Professor Dante Scala has scrutinized every New Hampshire election in the last four decades. He represents uh, a turn of the page in American politics. I think it, it may be time for Americans to look for something different. So that may be one reason why Obama has the hope that he has right now. So assuming the hype doesn't destroy him, Obama may be able to count on women and liberal voters. But what about middle-aged men? Tonight, I'd like to put all the doubts to rest. I would like to announce to my hometown of Chicago and all of America that I am ready for the Bears to go all the way, baby. Barack Obama, the guest of honor on Monday Night Football, the most watched television show in America. Gold dust for any aspiring president. And you have to ask yourself, would Hillary be invited to do this? Dun, 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 dun. That report by Matt Fry for The World Tonight. Washington came first and he was perfect. John Adams kept us out of war with France. Jefferson made Louisiana purchase. In 2007, titled Oscar Man Sequel. This podcast is read by Helen Borgers and was produced by Audible.com. Al Gore now has a movie with an Oscar and a grandson named Oscar. Who could ask for anything more? Al Gore could. The best ex-president who was never president could make one of the most interesting campaigns in American history even more interesting. Will he use his green moment on the red carpet and black tie to snag blue states and win the White House? Only the Goracle knows the answer. The man who was prescient on climate change, the Internet, terrorism, and Iraq admitted that maybe his problem had been that he was too far ahead of the curve. He realized at a conference that there are ideas that are mature, ideas that are maturing, ideas that are past their prime, and a category called pre-dawn. And all of a sudden it hit me, he told John Heileman of New York Magazine last year. Most of my political career was spent investing in pre-dawn ideas. I thought, oh, that's where I went wrong. As Mr. Gore basked Sunday night in the adoration of Leo, Lori David, and the rest of the Hollywood hybrid drivers, Democrats wondered, is this chubby guy filling out the Ralph Lauren three-piece tuxedo a mature idea or an idea that's past its prime? With Hillary overproduced and Barack Obama an unfinished script, maybe it's time to bring the former vice president out of turnaround. Hillary's henchmen tried to prognosticate the Goracle's future by looking at his waistline, according to Newsday. They think if he's going to run, he'll get back to fighting weight. 
With her own talent for checking the weather vane, Hillary co-opted Mr. Gore's eco-speak right after the Oscars, talking environment throughout upstate New York. Given his past competition with Hillary, Mr. Gore must have delighted in seeing his star rise in Hollywood as hers dimmed. If he waits long enough to get into the race, all the usual suspect consultants will be booked, which would be a boon for Mr. Gore since his Hessian strategists in 2000 made him soft-pedal the environment, the very issue that makes him seem most passionate and authentic. The same slides about feedback loops and the interconnectedness of weather patterns that made his image makers yawn just won his movie an Academy Award. But what's going on in his head? Like Jeb Bush, Al Gore was the good son groomed by a famous Paul to be president, only to have it snatched away by a black sheep who didn't even know the name of the general running Pakistan, the same one he just sent Vice to try to push into line. It must be excruciating not only to lose a presidency you've won because the Supreme Court turned partisan and stopped the vote, but to then watch the madness of King George and Tricky Dick too as they misled their way into serial catastrophes. Even though Chicken Hawk Cheney finally got close to combat in Afghanistan, his explosive brush with a suicide bomber has not served as a wake-up call about the danger of Osama bin Laden staying on the lam and Afghanistan slipping back into the claws of the Taliban and al-Qaeda while we are shackled to Iraq. A reporter asked Tony Snow yesterday what the attack on the Bagram air base that targeted the vice president and killed at least 23 people said about the Taliban's strength. I'm not sure it says anything, he replied. Mr. Gore must be pleased that he's been vindicated on so many fronts, yet it still must rankle the Nobel Peace Prize nominee to hear the White House spouting such dangerous nonsense. He must sometimes imagine how much safer the world would be if he were president. The Bush-Cheney years have been all about dragging the country into the past, getting back the presidential powers yanked away after Watergate, settling scores from Poppy Bush's old war, and suppressing scientific and environmental advances. Instead of aiming for the stars, the greatest power on earth is bogged down in poorly navigated conflicts with ancient tribes and brutes in caves. Surely the Goracle, an aficionado of futurism, must stew about all the time and money and goodwill that has been wasted with a Vietnam replay and a scolding social policy designed to expunge the age of Aquarius. When he's finished web surfing, tweaking his PowerPoint and blackberrying, what goes through his head? Does he blame himself? Does he blame the voting machines? Ralph Nader, Robert Shrum, Naomi Wolf. How about Bush, Inc. and Clinton, Inc.? With the red carpet rolled up, the tux at the cleaners, and the gold statuette on the director's mantle, not his, the Goracle is at his Nashville mansion contemplating how to broker his next deal. Will he cast himself as the savior of the post-Bush era, or will the first Gore in the Oval Office be Karen, mother of Austin? Darling, you got to let me know. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. One day is fine and next is black So if you want me off your back Well come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go 
Should I stay or should I go now? And finally, a March 4th New York Times story about the Congressional Out of Iraq Caucus led with a telling anecdote about the group's press conference last summer. No reporters showed up. Things have changed since then, right? Well, maybe and maybe not. The same piece argues that the caucus, which expresses the same positions on Iraq as the majority of the public, quote, is struggling to overcome its fringe image, close quote. The evidence, California Representative Barbara Lee, whose opinions, quote, play easily into Republican characterizations of some Democrats as peaceniks far from the mainstream, close quote. She fits the bill because she was the only vote against the authorization for military force after the 9-11 attacks. Given the state of affairs in Afghanistan, a war the public has shown dissatisfaction with as well as Iraq, you have to wonder why such positions are still derided as outside the mainstream. Then again, look no further than Time Magazine's profile of Congressman Dennis Kucinich. He's hardly ever talked about seriously in the U.S. media, and the magazine's March 12th piece is no different, teasing him as, quote, an aging five foot seven inch vegan, close quote. Yes, Kucinich is actually getting older, unlike the rest of the White House candidates, several of whom are, yes, even older than 60. Times Joel Stein says Kucinich will always fail the test of power, whatever that means. Though when he tells us what Kucinich is for, withdrawal from Iraq, ratifying Kyoto, universal health care, it's worth noting that these positions are solidly supported by the U.S. public. That doesn't matter, Time Magazine tells us. The joke's on Kucinich, who is convinced there's a moment coming when voters will suddenly realize he's not a joke. Perhaps he is too idealistic. For voters to take Kucinich seriously, reporters would have to treat him seriously. And they've proven themselves incapable of anything but scorn. Take away the sensation inside. Conservatives all got on Al Gore for his performance during the debates in 2000. And and from a stylistic point of view, it wasn't impressive. I mean, he did seem to roll his eyes and sort of look irritated. But I, 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 look, that's my pet peeve. I know I'm in the minority here, but it's really it's something that grates on me. Bush is an idiot. If I was debating him, I'd roll my eyes 98% of the time. I'd be like, how am I in a contest with this guy? I mean, I think you're crazy if you don't roll your eyes. I think what Al Gore did, there was nothing wrong with it. And I'll tell you how, how uh, really, look, I, I know conventional wisdom and mainstream media is against me. He rolled his eyes. That's why he lost the election. I think it is effing preposterous. And I'll tell you why I think I'm a fairly unbiased point uh, uh, in this especially. Because at the time, I was a Republican. And I was very predisposed to voting for Bush because I was a, what I believed myself to be a compassionate conservative. He ran as a compassionate conservative. What changed my mind was the debates. I said, that guy's an idiot. 
and the eye roller is completely right. The guy who I thought was Ozone Man, the one who was the crazy liberal in my mind. Check. I was like, I don't get it. The eye rolling, of course he should roll his eyes. The other guy's a monkey. But check, first of all, you don't think like most people or the rest of the country, and you are unquestionably wrong if you don't appreciate that that didn't work for him at all. Keep in mind. We've been talking about Iraq every day. The world's been talking about Iraq, and Americans think less than 10,000 people were killed in Iraq. 45% of Americans still think that the, Saddam had something to do with 9-11. So you're unqu- in, a, in, a, in a normal world, uh, and first of all, and we didn't have the hindsight then that we know now that, my God, we thought Bush was dim in 2000. We didn't appreciate how dim, mm-hmm. you know. But so at that point, people think, He's the all that stuff that worked. He's a, yeah. You got to know that people think Bush is a good guy. Yeah, he's not as sophisticated as Al Gore, but he's a nice guy. And Gore just played into the. Hand. I don't. By the way, I don't think it's why he lost. I just think the debates were an opportunity for Gore to shine, which for I think you know obviously in hindsight when we look back on them now he did. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not defending Al Gore. No, from, no, from, part of the reason it drives me crazy, Ben, is because you don't win or lose the debates. Okay, Al Gore crushed them in the debates, right. and that's, that's why he swung reasonable educated people like me right, right. Uh, what where he lost and by the way Al Gore of course let's all remember didn't lose right. under any recount of Florida except the selective county one that he lobbied for to be fair Gore lobbied for it, he was wrong right a, a full recount under any full recount of Florida Al Gore won the electoral vote he also of course as everybody knows won the popular vote for by several million votes so 550,000 so oh I'm sorry I thought it was two million oh, my bad um, so Al Gore, you know, for all intents and purposes, won. But put that aside for a second now. He didn't. He won the debates. He lost the spin. And the reason he lost the spin is because people came out and said he rolled his eyes. They nitpick him. I mean, if you're the Bush team, right, you come out of those debates and you're like, wow, we got creamed, right? We can't possibly attack on the substance. Let's attack something BS that we'll, that we'll, that we'll make up. We'll make up that he rolled his eyes and that that's a huge deal. And then the media goes into it 100%. Now, but it is the job of Al Gore and his team to counteract that and to say, of course he rolled his eyes. Look at the absurd things George Bush said. Who wouldn't roll their eyes? The whole country was rolling their eyes. If they had come over the top and they had been strong in their reaction, the reaction, the spin would have been, of course, everybody rolled their, the whole country rolled their eyes at what Bush said. Instead well, of, I can't believe how superior Jack, usually you're right Al Gore is. I, I just, uh, look, I wanted to get, I was trying to relate it to Ann Coulter, but uh, I think because she rolls her eyes 50, what I was going to say is 50 billion times more than Al Gore did. I mean, she can't stop rolling her eyes and being irritated with the question and scoffing and being dismissive. Uh, I just fundamentally disagree with you. I mean, presidential contests are largely popularity contests. Uh, Al Gore uh, had an opportunity to, in a, in a long form, introduce himself, and people don't like that. People don't like when you are seem arrogant toward the person you're with, and there is a fundamental understanding that you ought to treat the nominee of the other party fairly. Uh, <laughs> now, as it turned out, look, everybody was dead dead wrong about That's that. That's why Bush treated Gore so fairly. Yeah, and no, no, look, unquestionably, but and again, Kerry, why wow, they were so fair to Kerry? Look, but it, it's not. But Bush didn't do it. Other people did, it. and that's was a mistake. You know, this is we. You want to like the look. We know Bush. Want, you want to like the guy. People, for whatever reason, and partly because the media didn't cover it fairly, that's unquestionably true. But Al Gore, one, should have understood that that was already happening and been aware of it uh, and should have been 
and, and what the Gore people did by doing that was played directly into the hands of the Bush people who had managed so successfully to lower expectations for their guy. And Gore acted like that fact of lowering expectations for Bush hadn't happened. And you can't change the rules. You can't pretend like the rules didn't exist going in. So, look, everybody knows Al Gore ran, ultimately, considering the circumstances that he was in, uh, didn't do a good enough job in that campaign. I'm thinking of uh, going for Obama, and I'll tell you why. Because Hillary, you know, she plays by the same rules that all Kerry and Gore played by, and Gore seems to be a new man, but I, you know... If if you get the old Gore that ran that crappy campaign against Bush, it'll drive me out of my mind. I mean, I love what Gore has said over the last six years. Love it. And he's been right on everything. He's been right on Iraq. He's been right on global warming. He's been right on the abuses of the Constitution and more right than anybody else on probably all three of those fronts. So I support him. But he if he comes back, he better not run a campaign like that again. Look, was it wrong to appear arrogant in a popularity contest, Ben? Yes, I agree with you. You could overcome all of that. The only thing that matters the most, and it's worth more than all other characteristics combined, is strength. If you come and you punch him back harder, then you win. You could have come back and say, am I arrogant? Of course I'm arrogant because I'm much smarter than Bush. And you can't have somebody like this who can't even run his own business, who's a child, who's a cheerleader from Andover, be the president. I'm sorry that I'm arrogant, but I'm just so much more qualified than this guy that it's just, you know, you can't, you know, vote against me holding your nose uh, because you think that I'm too intellectually qualified, that I'm too uh, experienced for this position. But you cannot put this simpleton in charge of the greatest country ever built by man. Okay, and you know what? If Gore had done that, people would be like, you know what? I'm not sure I like Gore. Vote Gore, 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 Gore. Nobody would have voted for Bush. You'd diminish him. You'd ridicule him because he's worthy of ridicule. Bush. He's a stupid little cheerleader who got nothing but his daddy's help to get everything he ever wanted. You crush him and you grind him into the ground. And if they don't do that this time, they haven't learned a damn thing about politics. That's how Gore lost. That's how Kerry lost. And if Hillary and all those others didn't learn from it, that's how they'll lose. Well, you're wrong. Um, you, what, you were right, closer to being right in 2004. Uh, if Gore had done exactly what you said, mm-hmm. I might not have voted for him in 2000. So, I mean, it, you, 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 you admire that. I would not admire it at all. I think it would be awful. Now, the likelihood of me voting for George Bush over Al Gore was none. So I probably wouldn't have. But the fact is, that would have been terrible to say those things. Terrible, terrible. Now, everything did, Bush and Rove said were awful. And they won. Bush didn't say it. Bush didn't act it. Bush seemed like a really decent. Okay. I mean, look, I get politics 101. Don't have Gore say it. Have his hatchet man say it. Okay. I mean, well, what, what are they, idiots? Okay, but that's different. I mean, what, you, okay, you know. Okay, I'm all right. Okay, who cares? And then oh, well, Gore I mean, seems arrogant because he sends his hatchet man to <laughs> well, dress up as in cheerleader outfits to imitate Bush. Who cares? I mean, learn a little politics. Okay, well, I mean. I, that's fine. I think you should learn a little politics, but you just said something else, and that's what I was objecting to. So, uh, and that's what I think uh, it's you know, that's uh, and that's what I and I think it's an incredibly significant uh, distinction. Andrew Johnson just survived impeachment. General Grant enjoyed a drink or two. Rutherford B. Hayes ended Reconstruction. Garfield was assassinated in 1882. Arthur suspended Chinese immigration. Cleveland made the railroad people square. Harrison signed the Sherman Antitrust Act. 
Grover Cleveland served another term. McKinley kicked the Spanish out of Cuba. Roosevelt was handy with a gun. Taft was big and fat and had a mustache. Wilson kicked some ass in World War I. Harding said, let's laissez-faire with business. Coolidge made the roar and 20s roar. Hoover screwed the pooch in the Great Depression. Roosevelt beat the Nazis in the war. Welcome to this Time Select podcast from NYTimes.com. It is Maureen Dowd's op-ed column for Saturday, March 3rd, 2007, titled, Where's His Right Hook? As I sit across from Barack Obama in his Senate office, I feel like Ingrid Bergman in the Bells of St. Mary's when she plays a nun who teaches a schoolboy who's being bullied how to box. I'm just not certain, having watched the fresh-faced senator shy away from fighting with the feral Hillary over her Hollywood turf, that he understands that a campaign is inherently a conflict. The Democrats lost the last two excruciatingly close elections because Al Gore and John Kerry did not fight fiercely and cleverly enough. After David Geffen made critical comments about Hillary, she seized the chance to play Godzilla stomping on Obambi. As a woman, she clearly feels she must be aggressive in showing she can deck opponents, as she put it, whether it's Saddam with her war resolution vote or Senator Obama when he encroaches on areas that she and Bill had presumed were wrapped up, like Hollywood and now the black vote. If Hillary is in touch with her masculine side, Barry is in touch with his feminine side. He turned up his nose at his campaign's sharp response to Hillary and her pinstripe thug, Howard Wolfson. He told the Times Jeff Selaney that he had not been engaged in the vituperative exchange because he was traveling on a red-eye flight, getting a haircut, and taking his daughters to school. I asked why he couldn't have managed the Donnybrook while he traveled and did errands. Since he's sitting across from me using his BlackBerry, I wonder, where was your BlackBerry? Did your aides not ask you how to respond, or did you not want to ride herd on them, even just to tell them to ignore Hillary? Look, I came up through politics in Chicago, he says. When I arrived in Chicago in 1985, I didn't know a single person. Seventeen years later, I was the United States senator and in a position to run for president. So I must know a little something about politics. Channeling Ingrid, I press on and say, I know you want to run a high-minded campaign, but do you worry that you might be putting yourself on a pedestal too much? Because people also want to see you mix it up a little. That's how they judge how you'd be with Putin. When I get into a tussle, he replies, I want it to be over something real, not something manufactured. If someone wants to get in an argument with me, let's argue about how we're going to fix the health care system or where we need to go on Iraq. If campaigns follow the arc of the hero myth, what's the demon that I've slain, he finishes. You're getting kind of deep on me here. I think that for me, the story was overcoming a father's absence and reconciling the different strands of my background and coming out whole. Has he ever been struck by the similarity of Bill Clinton's growing up without his father? You don't want to go on with too much pop psychology, he replies. Somebody said that every man is either trying to live up to his father's expectations or trying to make up for his father's mistakes. And in some ways, when your father's not there, you're doing both. You try to live up to the expectations of somebody who's not present to tell you that you've done a good job, but you're also trying to make up for the mistakes that partially led to his absence. Does Al Gore have first dibs on the presidency? I love Al Gore, he replies. He's a smart guy. He said he liked Mr. Gore's seriousness on issues he cares deeply about. 
This sounds cliched, but this week I had five mothers of folks headed to Iraq cry during rope lines where I was shaking hands and had me hug them. This stuff is just not a game. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not the basic blocking and tackling of politics. I've got to raise money. I've got to manage my press. We've got to respond rapidly to attacks. But what I don't want to do is get drawn into the sport of it. When the Tiger Woods of politics goes to a civil rights commemoration in Selma, Alabama this weekend, just as the story breaks that his white ancestors had slaves, he will compete for attention with Hillary and the man billed as the first black president. How does he feel about the Clintons double-teaming him? Talking about the woman he described at the Beverly Hills fundraiser as smarter, better-looking, and meaner than he is, he grins, My wife's pretty tough. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody else. Pressure. There are lots of ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. And now our humorist Brian Unger imagines the very human presidential candidates as stars of a very steamy primetime drama. Here is today's Unger Report. This week on Race Anatomy. The race for president heats up. Tensions escalate between Hillary and Barack. And Newt must reveal a big secret. Meanwhile, Rudy reaches out to his estranged son as the right breaks John's heart. Also this week on an all-new race anatomy, Mitt continues to work feverishly to save his candidacy, but the man with only one wife of 38 years still has no heartbeat. Romney prepares for the worst. It's a race anatomy like you've never seen before. Also this week, a twice-divorced Gingrich, a twice-divorced Giuliani, and a once-divorced McCain. McSpeaker, McMayor, and McCain, grounded by love and a snowstorm, wind up stranded in a D.C. comfort inn. When the electricity goes out, the three men must cuddle to stay warm. Spooning in front of an electric fireplace, Gingrich finally breaks down, overcome by the guilt he feels over his role in the Clinton-Lewinsky affair. Sharing a few tears and a flask of bourbon and swapping stories about their combined eight marriages, Newt, Rudy, and John promise to be better frenemies. What else will Newt confess? What's in Rudy's closet? And can McCain bounce back? Don't ask, don't tell, just watch. It's a race anatomy that will leave the far right breathless. And still to come on this very special presidential race anatomy, Hillary, Bill, and the Oval Office. It's a love triangle. Fools in love. Are there any- 
Together, tossing aside a checkered past, the three try to make it work. But will Bill McSteamy Clinton's shot at becoming the first first husband be foiled by another man? Barack Obama, Senator McDreamy. Will a country take a man seriously whose worst habit is an occasional cigarette? Most of all. Can America trust a man who has only been married once? Find out in an all-new season of Passion and Politics on Race Anatomy. And that is today's Unger Report. I'm Brian Unger. Now that I've lost everything to you, you say you want to start something new, and it's breaking my heart that you're leaving. Maybe I'm grieving, but if you want to leave. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard volunteer to help edit these clips for the show or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com you know I've seen a lot of what the world can do And it's breaking my heart too Because I never want to see you sad girl Don't be a bad girl But if you want to leave Take good care Hope you make a lot of nice friends out there But just remember So Hillary Clinton is often running to try and be the first woman to be elected president of the United States of America. The latest opinion poll confirms her as the front runner to secure the Democratic nomination. Her main Democratic Party rival is likely to be the black senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. But we are only in 2007, with the New Hampshire primary a year away. A lot can still, of course, happen. Justin Webb reports from Washington. Good morning, everyone. Election Day 2008 may be 653 days away, but it became clear this week that we are in for the longest and loudest presidential campaign of our lives. It's madness and everyone knows it, but the 2008 election campaign is now in full swing. It's two days since Hillary Clinton entered the race, but already there have been two more declarations since hers, one of them from a relatively serious Democrat candidate, the governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson. The next president must be able to get us out of Iraq, must be able to restore America's international standing. To get that done, you need real-life experience. All I'm saying is a lot of these folks can make speeches about all these things. I've actually done it. And I've got the passion and love for this country. I'm patriotic. I'm positive. It would have been more newsworthy if he'd said he was not patriotic. And being newsworthy is going to be a challenge this time round. The oxygen is already being sucked from all the other candidates by the front runners. The tiddlers' talking points are getting submerged. Another of the weekend's declarers has already discovered that. Today, my family and I are taking the first steps on the yellow brick road to the White House. (laughs) 
Most observers think the Kansas Senator Sam Brownback, a Republican, has as much chance of being president as the Wizard of Oz. His newsworthiness this weekend was that he once said he hated Hillary Clinton. So what does he think of her now? She's very bright. Uh, she's a talented uh, lady, uh, quite committed. I, I do think from years of being in so much public exposure, there has to develop or does develop kind of a shield that makes it a little more difficult to get to know somebody. Truth is, at the moment, the Hillary announcement has dominated everything else. Even for a few days, the meteoric rise of the black Democrat senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. And at the moment, everyone is being polite about Hillary, including the Republican frontrunner, Senator John McCain. I'm convinced that she would be a very serious president, that we would have strong philosophical differences, as uh, is well known. But uh, certainly, I respect her views, and I think that uh, her... But would I... Would I pursue the policies uh, uh, and initiate initiatives uh, that she would? Certainly not, because I'm a conservative Republican. And what is she? She is beginning the process of telling us, including within the last few hours, a declaration on health care, which will attract many on the left of her party who think she let them down with her initial backing of the invasion of Iraq. I want to announce today uh, that I will be introducing legislation uh, to make quality, affordable health care available to every child in America. And There'll be plenty more of those announcements from all the main candidates. Plenty more chances for them all to shine or to crash and burn. You could just tune out until 2008, but what a lot you'd miss. Truman dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Eisenhower kept the commies well in hand. Kennedy was killed by a magic bullet Johnson murdered kids in Vietnam Nixon was a sweating, filthy liar Ford gave Nixon pardon for his crimes Carter lusted in his heart for peanuts Reagan won the Cold War and lost his mind George Bush Sr. poked at Saddam Hussein Clinton gave an intern a cigar W's legacy is a work in progress That is all the presidents so far In the year 2005 we're out of money Somewhere surely freedom's on the march I don't like to make political statements Edwards has to stop apologizing Enough Okay, I got it, dude I've now heard it like 38 times. Yeah, also. I know you're sorry for the Iraq war vote, right? And that's that's all he's apologizing for. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying in general, right? But like, and now the Associated Press is wondering, like people are beginning to say, is he apologizing too much? His repeated, asked whether his repeated apologies for his vote would be a turnoff to voters over time. <laughs> the 2004 vice presidential candidate said, I'm sorry if that happens. No, said, that, <laughs> said that after six years, voters craved a president willing to acknowledge errors and change course. It's sort of sad to watch his campaign because you just know he's no chance. Uh, it, once again, I totally disagree. <laughs> of course he has a chance. I, think Edwards is a I pretty, don't think he does at all. But, what I, but what's interesting is that Jill is beginning to be right. I mean, it looks like Edwards is slipping and slipping and slipping, and I'm kind of surprised by that. Uh, Look, why all, do you think he's? 
Maybe maybe it's because he's over apologized. I don't know what no, it is. What do you think? I don't think it's over apologized at all. First of all, he definitely has a chance. There's no question that he has a chance to dismiss him. No, the, no, obviously. Yeah, but, that's but, a, it's not even worth discussing that. that but his but, slippage. Talk about his slippage. He hasn't really slipped. He has just not moved. I mean, he was at the same place last month. He has, uh, he has, as everybody has, been uh, uh, Obama-ized. Uh, you know, I mean, even Hillary has to some extent. Uh, she's the most famous Democrat in the planet, and she's still, you know, again, under 40 percent. Obama has sucked the uh, uh, media attention and voter attention instantly because he is the really only he and Hillary are both the, that label that is overused. But true. And it's true of McCain, too. You know, we, I, I say it too much, too. In fact, the, I was going to say rock star. In fact, I'm going to stop saying it. But the the combo candidate and celebrity. Mm-hmm. That you know they got it both, and Edwards is not really much of a celebrity, uh, but he is polling well in early states, uh, and sh- again, should you know he won New Hampshire? You got to remember uh, last time, and and it would just be a, an enormous mistake. He's a diligent, tireless campaigner, and he's doing it the old-fashioned way. He's been out there. He's not. Uh, he he isn't hampered by ha- but what Hillary and Obama are of having to like be in Washington and vote on stuff and. So, uh, I mean, I think he's the least likely of those three, but, you know, what the hell do I know? Uh, well, this is what he said about the Iraq war vote yet just yesterday. Oh, my God. I am totally, 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 totally sorry for that. Now, which Young Turks listener reviewer didn't see that come? Uh, I have uh, it's fun- can I Can I give you a tip? What's that? Because that, that actually was a great um, a great sound clip to, to play. Right. But it would have been funnier, like, while Ben was reading the Associated Press article, to throw it in there rather than introduce your joke, pause, deliver, and then say, "Wasn't it funny?" Hold on, let me let me write this down. <laughs> I didn't get. Can you repeat that second sentence? Because I, I missed that. Okay, <laughs> now that I've taken note of that, I'll, I'll try that next. Time. Hey, wait, but I'll... you sort of do that with your little sound clip machine. You're like, "I'm going to play a sound clip now, and I, it's going to be funny." Here we go. I happen to think that that's the better way to go, but I could be wrong because it's kind of. You know what, Jake? I'm not when when you defend it, you make me want to. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's funnier. See, that's the way they tell jokes in Turkey. Jill, that's what you don't understand. I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm just going to do it at random. Now, go ahead, talk. <laughs> go ahead, say something. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. The, don't, don't, don't do it, Jill. Uh huh. So, what do you think of the people of the jury room? <laughs> they were complete <laughs> I can't hear the sound clip. He just used the gun. Oh. Yeah, it was totally random. That would have been. See, it's funny. I don't um, need random. Like, put a meow behind John Edwards. I, I mean, I, I obviously lied. the sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that one was pretty appropriate too. I should do that more. You know what? She's right. I am writing it. Uh, there probably aren't uh, rules for this. You should probably get. But Jill's point is valid. You could have just played it. Yeah. But uh, sometimes setting it up a is pack also, of lies. Sometimes setting up is good too. I don't know what I, I'm reading the the AP story and and I couldn't find the quote that is in the headline on Huffington Post. And if he anywhere said what is the headline on Huffington Post, then it's ridiculous. The headline on Huffington Post is Edwards. I'm proud to say my 2002 war vote was a mistake. You can't be proud. To say that you made a mistake. <laughs> I mean, it's great to say you made a mistake, but you can't be proud of it because that's that's like then you're proud of it. It doesn't make any sense.
But I can't find that quote. I just see that in the headline. Look, when I had sex with that woman uh, without a condom and I got her <laughs> pregnant, that was a terrible mistake on my part. Oh, on the flip side of it is, I'm really proud of that mistake. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so final thing on Edwards for me is, um, look, the guy's so transparent. The reason he keeps bringing up the mistake part and the, the fact that he apologized for it and he continues to apologize for it is because Hillary hasn't. And he's calculated that it's going to hurt Hillary that she has not apologized for it and that she is, you know, as Edwards paints it, and I think is relatively right, uh, that we can't have somebody else in office for six years who won't apologize for their mistakes or learn from them. And that's, so Hillary's being like Bush. That's why he keeps emphasizing it. But I just, maybe other people find it subtle, but I find Edwards totally ham-handed in these things. I mean, he's like, he comes in and he's like, you know, son of a mill worker, uh, she won't apologize. I, I'm like, dude, I got it. I, I got it from a mile away. No, that's, I mean, that's exactly the point why I don't think there's a chance there's nothing subtle about Edwards. But I, I'm not convinced that people, you know, want subtlety out of their leaders. I mean... Is there anything subtle about Bush? Maybe Bush is right and Edwards is right. You just keep repeating the same thing over and over until you uh, catapult the propaganda. You know? Yeah, so. Jill, you're, to, to say that uh, you don't think Edwards is going to be the guy I think is valid. I, you're making a mistake if you say he doesn't have a chance. It's too, many, too many people with far less of a chance have emerged than guys like, uh, than guys like uh, uh, John Edwards. But I, uh, this is I, utterly preposterous. Utterly preposterous. This is beyond the realm's of the ridiculous. If you again, you needed to say like set it up with about why it was oh, preposterous, oh. then that would have Damn made it. sense. Okay, well. um, <laughs> uh, it's too hard to move around on a machine, so we always have to go with stuff that's near the stuff we just play. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but I was making the point that Jill's point is utterly. This is utterly preposterous. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, but uh, you know, that said, uh, obviously, the the, the you know, I, I like to talk about what candidates have to overcome and what Edwards has to overcome. <laughs> Is the thought that a lot of people seem to think uh, you're full of shit, <laughs> and and it does seem like yeah you're over apologizing. We get it. Hillary hasn't done it. Point made. But it starts to lose its authenticity. Look, I think if John Edwards was not known and he hadn't been on the circuit before, I, yeah, fine, maybe he has a chance. But I, I I really I just think people are turned off by John Edwards. We've seen we've seen his show before, and I don't think anybody appreciates it or likes it. Okay, well, luckily we found a tape of John Edwards apologizing again yesterday. <laughs> Let me play it for you. I regret it. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. That was just my mistake and my bad. And I'm sorry. Such a tool. You know who that is, right? That's Tim Hardaway. Yeah, Tim. I'm sorry. I love the way he says it. It's my mistake and my bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's yeah. him apologizing for the homophobic comments he made before. <laughs> and uh, I can call him that because he said it. And he said, yeah, I'm homophobic. I hate gays. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Uh, I got to go back to Edwards one final time. Is he retarded, too? I apparently, man, doesn't he sound it? I regret it. I'm sorry. Man, I'm sorry. That was just my mistake and my bad. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I love uh, Tim Hardaway's apology. Was always, I'm sorry, I said it. Not that there's anything, you know. Yeah. Right? There's no apology. Uh, gay people are. I can't play with them. I hate them. Sorry, I said it because it cost me my job with the NBA. And he keeps saying, like, but Chris Mullen won't apologize. You know, I'm out here apologizing for my comments, but Chris Mullen, he thinks you just keep going. Has John Edwards been descriptive <laughs> and detailed as to why he's apologizing for his vote? Or is he just saying, 
I'm really proud that I'm apologizing. No, he is. He is. De- he's definitely been descriptive, and there's no question. But uh, I think with Edwards, it's, it's actually the opposite of what you say, Jill. That people are not tired of him. It's that I mean, actually, people seem to like John Edwards. It's that he, if he hasn't done anything, he has not been able to light a fire of excitement. What do they like about him? Well, that he talks, he has a real uh, populist message, uh, that uh, he is effective in talking about the problems of real Americans, regular Americans, in a way that Hillary and, and, and even Barack Obama seem incapable of. Uh, but he has not been able to uh, certainly electrify people with the new sort of authentic John Edwards. I just feel like he's, he hasn't done anything except have good hair. All right. I think this is how Edwards is going to leave his campaign. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you guys are having fun, but I'm having fun. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I think John Edwards will be. I'm looking forward to being called Connecticut's Comeback Canada. People will be like, dude, you're not from Connecticut. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? And then it will be like, I'm sorry that I said I was from Connecticut. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. So there has been a discussion going on at the Best of the Left forums, and it basically revolves around the issue of, I guess, the lack of frequency of shows and maybe what to do about it. And the discussion started with with a listener suggesting Maybe the theme of each show is um, is maybe too hard to produce on a regular basis. Um, basically, that uh, if we lifted the restriction for each episode to be a themed episode, then it would be easier to produce more episodes faster hence giving you more material and enjoyment out of the show. And <clears throat> so that, that discussion blossomed just a little bit, and, and then I posted saying, basically, it, you know, it's not so much the, the, the fact that each show is themed that's slowing me down, like that's not the, the problem <laughs> with, with, uh, with the, the process. The problem is really that I've been extremely busy recently. And, uh, you know, for several different reasons. Um, and so the discussion continued, and they said, well, okay, so maybe lifting the restriction of the themed episodes wouldn't make the production faster, but maybe if we are stuck with only having about one show a week, <clears throat> maybe, uh, maybe it would be better actually to not have themed shows so you know one you know hour to hour and 20 minute episode could cover five topics instead of only one and so this got me thinking you know because from the very early days um this show has always been themed and that has always been the one aspect of the show most frequently referenced by people making comments 
wherever they made comments, whether directly to me or on iTunes or etc. People always say they love the theme shows, but it got me thinking that back when people wrote that all the time, it was when I was doing like five shows a week, which is crazy. <laughs> but I had the time and, and you know, I, I could manage to do it. So back when I was doing five shows a week, in a week you'd get each themed show and it would cover only one topic, <clears throat> but you'd still get five topics covered in one week, whereas now you get one show or so um, and, uh, and it only covers one topic. So then in one week you only get one topic, which is totally lame and I understand that. So I wanted to ask you guys... Uh, you know, everyone to write in your opinion, what do you think? Um, although I am, you know, some of the things that have got me extra busy right now will not be keeping me extra busy later, and I seriously do hope to produce more shows on a more regular basis than I have been, but I would like to either receive emails or the best thing really is to just join up in this conversation in the forum. I'll, I'll put a link directly to this conversation so you don't have to search through the forums or anything like that. Um, but, but just uh, check out that conversation, add to it any ideas you have, and, and give, give us your opinion. If the show uh, sadly must remain a fairly infrequent um uh, must remain on a uh, on a fairly uh, limited schedule, I guess, uh, of about one show a week. Would you prefer that the shows not be themed and to be, you know, slightly more, uh, slightly more timely, just kind of put together of, of clips on a variety of different topics and just kind of thrown together? And uh, you know, I I thought that. The answer would be no, but since this conversation came up, I'm realizing I could be totally wrong and that maybe you would prefer that. So I'm putting it out there, and I would very seriously like your response on that. And, uh, you know, it's a community-based show, community-produced show, so I, there's no reason why the community shouldn't be the one to decide how it gets produced, and uh, I have no problem giving you guys what you want. So... Uh, let me have your feedback on that, and, and we'll see how it all works out. So from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thought lines are black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet Just a fond farewell to a friend